But before we get into it, remember, God loves us. That is the foundation of everything that he asks of us. And what he's doing is not asking us to do obedience in a vacuum. This next thing I'm going to say is critical. Because I think this is oftentimes where we get a lot of this twisted. We, uh, by and large, are not excited about or even think about that God has invited us into the grand redemptive narrative. The whole reason you were saved is not for you to go to heaven. It's not the whole reason you were saved. That's part of it. But another part of it is so that you could display God's glory in this broken and fallen world so the family could get bigger and that we would use everything that we have to do that. That means material gifts that we have, spiritual gifts that we have. Everything we do ought to be to welcome in those who are, as we sang about, in need of adoption. Because we we're in need of adoption. And we should leverage everything we have to, to call people to us. Now, again, remember what I've said before, it still applies. Don't add anything to your life. Look at your current spheres of influence and how can you leverage what you already have where you already are? Because God is sovereign. I guarantee you, he's placed you in circumstances where your gifts your abilities, your specific personality matters and can have an impact. And so, with that said, listen to what John McKay says as we step into this. He says, Malachi continues to deal with the spiritual malaise. That's really important that we remember that. That the book of Malachi is not addressing some great, big, giant, idolatrous issue. They're not doing anything crazy. They're just bored. Which would describe Many of us here in the United States of America, we're just bored. Malachi continues to deal with the spiritual malaise that affected the people by reminding them of God's constancy. Their preservation was due to the Lord's unwavering commitment to the covenant, not theirs. And we're going to hear that as we step into the text. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Malachi 3, 6 through 12. <coughs> For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have not turned aside from my statutes, or you have not ceased to turn aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and your contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's unpack this for a second and not forget where we've come from. Remember last week, the great challenge was justice. 
The people were saying, God, if you were just, then where are you? Why all this injustice and you don't do anything? Remember what he said. He said, all right, if I show up now, a lot of you are going to die. Because judgment will fall and many of you are guilty of injustice. You were supposed to be my hands and feet. If you are charging me, God, with injustice, it's because you, who are the incarnation of my image in this world, are failing to be just. You follow? And so now he's going to continue this conversation and show them an area in which they are particularly unjust, and that is with their treasure. Remember what Jesus said. Where is your treasure? Where? Where your heart is. And if your heart is for mammon, can you serve God? First of all, what's mammon? It's money. It's, It's material things. It's commodities, right? It's Bitcoin. It's all of that stuff. Not Bitcoin uniquely. Mammon covers the whole gamut. So it's anything that we, we place a value on and trade and use for uh, gaining things. So you cannot serve both. You just can't do it. No matter how hard you try, you will, you're going to love one or you're going to love the other. And if you're going to choose, think about this now. If you're going to choose to love that which is passing away, which all currency does, Right? We've seen this. Think about the, the crash back in two, late 2007, 2008. Think about the stock market crash. Think about all of the times and, and, and the number of people who committed suicide during that season who said life was no longer livable because everything I have built up has been taken away. You cannot serve two masters. That's just real talk. And that's not God being mean to us. That's God speaking clearly, which we should want is clarity. And so he's, he's basically telling them, look, I haven't changed. The fancy theological term for that, if you want to impress your friends at lunch later, is immutability. You could say, you know what? You're just not immutable enough for me. You just change too much. Uh, Or you can declare your own immutability, which I I don't recommend, by the way. It is really a theological term. But God is unchanging, and because he's immutable, that means nothing can make him change. Because he stands over all things. He is sovereign. Now notice what the benefit of his unchangeableness is to the people. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, in what is it that he is unchanging? His love for them, his pursuit of them, his unwillingness to let them go in toto. Does he discipline them from time to time as any good parent would? Yes, he does. Does he give up on them ever in toto? No, actually he doesn't. In fact, if you notice throughout redemptive history, he, on his part, grows, just continues uh, to be generous beyond anything we could comprehend. We who are so undeserving of such great generosity, he continues to lavish it upon us. So, so most important is the recognition that he has not changed. He continues to pursue and love us, his people. 
Now, why is that good news to us? Well, he says next, and you too have been immutable in something. What are they immutable in? Consistently continuing the sins of their fathers. They have not changed in the sins that they commit. And let me ask you, with nothing new being under the sun, what new sins have we really created, if you think about it? Really, all we've done is nuance sins that have been there since East of Eden. We've just, we'll riff on them. We'll give you a new flavor, it may seem like. It's all the same stuff. We're all trying to declare that I am God, and I get to decide who and what I am, not you, Lord. There is no creator-creature distinction. The only distinction is I am sovereign. The grave will say otherwise of you. Your sovereignty will end there. But God's continues in eternity, which is why he says, this is why you are not consumed, because I love you, not because you love me. So that straightaway tells us this cannot be a commodified exchange. This is a relationship with purpose and meaning. And so he says, though you have not changed, if you would but repent and return to me, I would return to you. Now, other scriptures help us understand this passage even better. Think about Hosea, which we've gone through before, but even more importantly, the one you're probably most familiar with, which is the parable of the prodigal son. At the moment that the prodigal son decided to go back to the father, what was already underway? His father was already looking for him. His father was already halfway there. His father was already prepared to receive his son. So it's not that, uh, that the prodigal son made his decision and then the father made his. When did the father make up his mind? Long before the prodigal had anything in his mind other than, I wish you were dead, give me all that's mine. So this is what it means when, when he says, if you would return to me, I'd return to you. What he's saying is, I'm already on the way. I'm already over halfway there. I've already decided to receive you. Notice it doesn't say, if you would return to me and do 12 things that are really good and do all this stuff, then I'll take you back. No, what did he say? Turn, repent, and notice, I'm already there. I'm already ready to receive you. What a gift. So that, that frames out what we're about to talk about. And notice how they respond. How, how's it we need to return? Like, what do we do? When I was in elementary school, uh, there was a young man who I, I think went on to do prison time uh, legitimately. Um, and our school had a special education program that was one of the last full-blown special education pro programs in the state that took profoundly disabled uh, students. And Mr. Ingram, who was the principal, was a fierce advocate on their behalf. He suspended me one time for a week for running through the department. I think that's a little much. But what it did do is also make me a fierce advocate because he told me, he was so angry with me, and Mr. Ingram loved me dearly. 
Uh, he told me, he said, you're going to jail someday, boy. He said, you are. Unless you learn how to handle your anger. I fought all the time. I know that's surprising to so many of you. Uh, but he was the one that, that started kind of me in this quasi-anger management stuff that I didn't know was anger management at the time. But he it was really discipleship. Mr. Ingram loved me uh, with no reason to love me, who was just white trash out of a trailer park in Union City. And yet, he was so fierce an advocate that one, one day the students from the special education department had made art, and it was in the, it was in the um, lunchroom. And we had the, the meal that I think universally was hated, and I think it was the, the way for the lunchroom to strike back at terrible students. Uh, they served tuna. And it would always be like this little glob of tuna on this piece of lettuce as if the presentation did anything for it. And so Zane Bailey grabbed that tuna and decided to help three-dimensionalize some of these kids' art. Okay, He thought it was hilarious. I was, a, I was a bad kid. I thought it was pretty hilarious. And uh, Mr. Ingram launched a CSI-level investigation that expended no, I mean, there was going to be no research. He was going to find his man. And he knew it was a boy uh, just by virtue of smearing tuna on pictures. I don't know that girls do that kind of stuff in elementary school. But he found him. Now, remember, we were standing, in fact, he had us all stand in line. It was almost like this scared straight kind of thing. So we never got to go back to our classroom. He made us all stand in the hall. And uh, he comes up, and he's kind of walking down the line. He's looking, and he can, Zane looked so guilty, it was insane. Like, it was crazy. And so I remember he said to him, he said, Zane, why did you smear that tuna on those children's thing? And Zane was like, what? what? I didn't do anything. And just made himself look even more guilty. That's essentially what they're doing here. What, what, how do we need to return to you? What is it we need to do? What have we done? As if God is not sovereign and doesn't see all. And we, in very silly ways, when confronted, even by brothers and sisters in Christ with things, um, we, we, we're like, what? Why do I need to do anything? And we've talked about this before. Once you deal with the 25 feet of lumber sticking out of your own fat head, Mr. Barham. We'll get to that. We will. I mean, I need to, too. You're right. Give me something to work with. And so, so we do the same thing. We don't like feeling like we have to return because that means something's not quite right and our perfection ain't quite what we thought it was. But notice it's God's grace. If he sees you're doing something that is destructive to you, to say something to you is love. It's actually humility, a quality that we would rarely give to prophetic voices. Do you, do you have any idea the cost of confronting any one of you with anything? And I'm not talking financial. And you, if you think it's something that we who have that horrible gift, that severe mercy, if you think that it's something that, that makes us happy, you, you've never looked into the eyes of the one who has to say it in pain. And so he in love is saying, you need to return. And they're like, what? We, what? He said, you've robbed me. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your offerings. Notice how this connects to the issue of worship, which was dealt with earlier in the book of Malachi. So when they don't give their tithes and offerings, that means that you're muzzling the ox, to use a New Testament phrase. That means the priests can't and their families can't eat. 
Now, this is long before opulence in the priesthood is a major issue. This is basic survival. In addition to that, and one of the reasons he says, bring the tithe into my house so that there's food. This is how the poor were fed. So to not give, to not tithe is to say, we don't care about the most marginalized. We don't care about worship, and we don't care about the most marginalized. The other aspect that it impacted was their ability to throw a good party, something we evangelicals are really bad at, by and large. But they would throw parties. And you ought to see 2 Chronicles 30 and how that party was so amazing. They were like, we got to go a whole nother week. And people brought in all kinds of stuff and the party went a whole nother week. They were so excited. And so what was that for? That was to show the rest of the world God's glory and call them in. It was missional. So it was all three phases. In not giving, they were failing to love the Lord their God. And they were also failing to love their neighbor. Notice what he also says. He says, give so that there's food in my house. And that's an issue of hospitality, right? God is incredibly hospitable. We could learn some from that. But it's also, he says, and, and test me. See if I won't open up the windows of heaven and rain down upon you. And notice what it says. So that there is no need. Now, that alone strikes a blow at the prosperity gospel. The issue that God is talking about is the meeting of needs for the purpose of mission, which we see actually happen in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost. Notice as they gathered together, nobody had any need. It was not first century communism because they weren't forced to sell anything. It was purely by choice. You may say, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Didn't they die? No, they lied. They could have told the truth and said, no, we sold it and we're only going to give a portion what they did is said, we gave you the whole portion to make themselves look good. So their lie was not about, it wasn't an issue of uh, that they had to give it all. The issue was they lied to have both their cake and eat it too, which was dishonoring to the Lord their God. Now, lucky for us, uh, we don't go through and announce what we're tithing. And so none of you get struck dead on this issue that I'm aware of so far. And so what God is saying is, I will bless for the purpose of mission. I will bless my people so that you're not tangled up in trying to meet needs. You can instead focus on mission. So to try to make that about prosperity of the individual or the elevation of the individual is patently unbiblical. On the other side, to say that God doesn't both love and like his people, and choose to bless them with good things from time to time is austerity gospel and equally unbiblical. It's to essentially say that God is not good. And that too is devastating to us, which often means that we choose instead, right, to withhold because we don't trust the Lord as provider. And remember him as provider begins in Genesis 1. It's part of the promise of the cultural mandate. He says, you be fruitful, multiply, you have dominion, and I'll make sure you have everything you could possibly need. And that continues. 
And that includes protection. Notice what it also says. That he would make sure that that which would seek to steal their provision, he will protect them from. Peter picks up the same language when he says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour. One of the places that's easiest to get a sidetrack, by the way, is in money, need, and protection. Think about how much of your life at current is expended on provision and how much it affects you. Now, please don't think I just said you better all go into ministry and, and, and live an impoverished life. That is not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that much of our life is taken up with the aspect of provision. So if we're not seeing it through the lens of God's love for us, if we are not gratitudinous every single day, sooner or later, it will rob us. That's what's interesting here. He says, will a man rob God? And what he's saying behind it, especially when he talks of them being cursed, is no, you've actually robbed you. You have robbed yourselves of being able to see how much I love you, seeing me as provider and protector, of also joining with me in mission. Again, I don't think that we respect that enough, that you were saved for something. You are are given what you're given for something. Think about the parable of the talents. Not everybody's given the same. Not everybody's expected to produce the same. But all of us have been given something and therefore should produce something. Eternal, right? And so this, yes, deals with our giving. But more importantly, it deals with our heart and how we view our money and God's provision and protection. And so if we have a distorted view of that aspect of our lives, which by the way, uh, I I can't imagine how uncomfortable it would be if I said, all right, uh, I'm gonna set up a sign-up list and uh, I want you to bring your W-2 to the office and we're gonna go over your giving. I just wanna talk to you specifically about your giving. I wanna see a budget. I wanna see how much you're spending on, you know, Netflix and Sling and Hulu and YouTube and Cigarette, I don't know if anybody smokes cigarettes, but cigarettes or whatever it is you're, you're spending your money on, I, I want to see that because in order for me to hold you accountable as shepherd, I mean, I got to know it all. How, who's signing up for that one first? I see no hands. That's not, what, that's not what this is about. It's not about me knowing that specifically. In fact, one of the commentators argues that the fact that God brought up giving, that was specifically a very private matter. Most people didn't know. That was really between you and God. It's almost like the issue of covetousness. It's only something that is inside that God would see and you would know. Nobody else can really see it. We here at Christ Community Church, I don't look at what each of you gives individually. I don't, and the reason I don't is I don't want to be tempted in any way, shape, or form to treat some of you differently than others. However, we do get a periodic report, and you need to know this, of people who don't give who are members. Oftentimes, it's, it's a signal. It's like a canary in the coal mine. It signals either that you're in financial trouble and you just haven't told us yet because you're embarrassed because finances is one of the most embarrassing topics in all of America. Or it means you're going out the door. Usually people stop giving first as their first act of uh, rebellion and then, and then they'll transition out over time. All that does is help us. We're not gonna come to you and say, hey, 
I could have bought an extra latte last week if you'd give it. Uh, or we could, we could actually have a, a building or something. No, it's not what that's about. Again, this is a shepherding issue. Um, and so let me say something to, to all of you, beginning with probably the, the level of, of college student, maybe even high school student. Again, it's not about what you give. And so often what I hear is, I can't afford to give. No, no that's the wrong view of giving. It's not, not about amount. You want to begin to establish a heart for God as provider and protector. And so this is where you can begin to grow. It's an aspect of discipleship. And I don't need to know what you give and all that kind of stuff, but I just want to tell you that the idea that you are too impoverished to give to the church is to say that you don't want to participate in the mission of the local church. You may say, but I serve. Yep, that's one aspect. The whole of the Christian life is not about giving, and it's also not about serving. The whole of the Christian life is about worship, glorifying the Lord our God, loving our neighbor, loving him. So it's a subset, and it's an area in which we often kind of hold on the tightest. So if you begin now to kind of deconstruct that, it'll be a blessing to you later on. Trust me, I'll be confessional. When I was in seminary, I came to Susan. I said, hey, look. I don't think we have to tithe. I mean, basically, we'll give it to the seminary. I'm going to use it for the sake of the church, right? You see the math here, Susan? And fortunately, she's so strict, that was inconceivable to her. And you may say, God, you're our pastor. Yeah. <laughs> I repented. I agreed with her, you know. But it's hard sometimes not to do funky math when you, when you are making it about you instead of about the Lord our God. And guess what the Lord did? We cash flowed seminary, which ain't cheap, by the way. Uh, and we also were able to pay off my school loan much faster than we thought. We paid cash for cars. Uh, again, not because we are rich, by no stretch. The math does not work in the supernatural. However, the Lord has been gracious and good and we have no complaints whatsoever, uh, and we have remained to be faithful and generous, and that's because Susan refused to do some fuzzy math that Cameron came up with in his postmodern mind. And so, um, what, I, what I also want to say to those of you who are kind of young marrieds, right, you, you too could think, we're just getting started. I mean, we'll, we'll, someday, someday we're going to get back to it, I mean, we're, and we're going to give crazy good. I mean, I'm planning some crazy stuff. Not really planning, I'm just saying. Uh, and I'm not talking, again, do not hear me talk about how much you give. That's not the issue. I want you to change how you think about your giving. We gotta reframe it. It's not money, it's worship. It's not money, it's mission. So, my hope is that what we'd see is God has been so generous to us. He's been so generous to us that, that we are to seek to leverage everything he grants to us first as first fruits in order to advance the mission. You could give a ton of money, but if you're not praying over it and you don't think, see it through the lens of mission, you're missing a huge aspect of what this is really about. You are robbing you. If you're not giving at all because you don't think you have enough, you're making a comment about God as provider. You're declaring something about him which also robs you. And so would that we would be a people who are generous. So let me say this about you on the whole. I've said this before. 
you guys are actually legitimately generous. And thank you. You, you have been uh, amazing in this regard. You're this, if we look at just pure stats, your percentage is better than the national average. Your percentage is about on par, as we talked about, even a little better than the big church I talked about a while back, uh, where they seem to give all kind of money. Um, you, you're doing great, but I want you to make sure how you think about it that you are you're cognizant that it is an aspect of the Christian life. It is mission, it is worship, and that becomes part of it. So that when you stroke the check, it's not in pain. Or you give online, or you, you put money in the bucket, or however that works. Um, I, I want you to instead be, be joyful at what God has given you. God has given us, and I, there's so many testimonies here of jobs. Pres- he's preserved so many of you through difficult seasons we could just testify on and on and on of the goodness of God. And that's what giving is supposed to be, a testifying of his goodness. Amen? So this is what Ian Duguid and Matthew P. Harmon say about this passage. Of course, such temptations were multiplied by the relative ease of fudging one's tithe figures. For this reason, tithing was perhaps the perfect test to expose one's true heart relationship toward the Lord. Faithful giving or selfish stinginess would truly be known only by the individual and by God. So for you, first and foremost, knowing who God is and his unchangeableness, which way do you run when you mess up? How quick are you to repent? Do you recognize that the way has been open? You don't have to do anything to get back in God's good graces to come to him. Return to him and what you will see is he was already standing there waiting for you. And then secondly, what does your current practices and generosity reveal about your faith and trust in God? What is it evidence? You need to think about this. Don't just brush it aside. What if, you, if, if, if your giving practices were known, what would it evidence about what you think about God as provider, him as faithful, uh, him as protector? That's hard. Uh, and again, what, what messes with us is some of you are like, yeah, but give me a number. What, what's the number I got to be at? Nope. It's about the heart. That's why he says he loves a generous giver. He loves a joyful heart in giving. Right? So I can't give you a number. If you want to pick 10%, because that's what Abraham did for Melchizedek, cool. Call it the Melchizedek tithe and make it awesome. Make a t-shirt, whatever. Make it like a little thing on the wall with the thermometer and you can read it out and that kind of stuff. That's fine. If you want to go next level, 23, 26%, keep it old te- full Old Testament, that's awesome. You want to get New Testament crazy, 45, you want to be a 45 percenter, I'll be happy to make a club, give you a car, whatever. But that's not what it's about, you understand? It's not about money and percentages. It's about the heart and worship. It's about God's faithfulness. So what do we learn from this? That God is unchanging in his commitment to love us as our protector and provider, which calls for repentance and faithful obedience from us in response. Let me give you one last quote, which I think is really important, because Alan Ross is going to make it very clear. You cannot divorce giving. Giving is not a separate aspect of the Christian life that you can view differently than all the rest. You can't. Listen to what he says. 
if they, being the Israelites, persisted in disobedience, there would be no divine provision or protection. It would not matter if they gave money. If they were divorcing their spouses, marrying pagans, not teaching the word right, ruining worship, or treating poor people with contempt, then tithing would not bring blessing. So you can, it, it doesn't work that way. It's not like, all right, I'm going to give more uh, because of this over here. I had a friend one time who uh, did a fair amount of illegal betting. And he won a whole bunch of money one time. And he came to me with this envelope and he said, kind of looked around, he's like, give this to the rescue mission and don't ask questions. <laughs> and you may say, what did you do with that blood money? Well, I prayed over it and gave it to the rescue mission and said, may the Lord use it for his good, that which was filthy lucre. For those of you who know that, that passage from scripture, the Lord can use for good. But I did go back to him and say, you do understand that this is not the way this works. And he, this man went on to become a Christian uh, not long after that conversation. But I get it. And you do it too. You try to atone with your giving or you're just not even thinking about it. Make sure. Try to reframe. And if we need to have this as a conversation, I'll be happy to talk to you and not talk numbers. Um, if you're interested in budgeting stuff, Philip Lucas is our, our whiz on the, on the session and has helped some of you already. Susan is also a whiz in this regard, but I'm just going to tell you, she don't play. <laughs> I'm living it. You know, y'all pray for me. Pray for her too. Uh, but if, it, if there's something we can help you with, but if, if it's an issue of, hey, I just, I'm trying to figure out how this fits in the Christian life, how do I think about this, we would love to talk with you, pray with you, and help you through that. All right, let's pray. Father, <coughs> thank you that you've been so good to us and so gracious to us. Thank you that you have loved us so much. And you've given us so much, and you've, you've, you've resourced us beyond what we could even begin to imagine in a fallen world. God, help us to see that what you've given us, you've given us for a purpose, that it's to join you in the great redemptive narrative so that our lives actually have meaning, which is what we're all searching for, is meaning. And how we do that is in joining with you in the work that is eternal instead of just building things that will either be inhabited by someone else someday to use for their own purpose or destroyed by the sands of time. God, help us to know that you are right behind us longing to be in, in relationship with us, that we would return to you quickly, recognizing that we don't have to do anything to prepare other than turn. But in so doing, once we're resourced to use that, to evidence how much you have loved us so that the nations could see that the church is a land of delight. In Christ's name, amen.